Welcome to All the Things with Monique Dusan from the Center for Biblical Unity and theology mom, Krista Bontrager. And now, here's Krista and Monique. Hello, everyone. Welcome to All the Things. I am Monique Dusan. And I'm Krista Bontrager, also known as Theology Mom. This is the show where we talk about all things related to God, the Bible, and real life. And as you can see, we're still not in our home studio yet. Not yet. So we're crammed behind a tiny desk (laughs) right here. You guys, the struggle's real. But it's okay, because we are here together as family on Saturday night. almost said Friday night. That's right. It's not Friday. And we are live. Yes. So we want to invite you to join us on the chat for tonight's conversation, which is sure to be interesting. Yes, yes, yes. So uh, we do actually read the comments during the stream and try to incorporate some of your questions into the conversation. So make sure to uh, interact with us during the live. Yes, but don't come at us with the okie doke because we do have chat, chat box moderators. We have, I saw Emily Bontrager in there and I think um, Jennifer Bytel is there, if I'm not mistaken. I think she's um, supposed to join us possibly. Yes. Okay. Emily's there. Emily sure. is there. And so yeah. thank you very much for moderating our chats and making sure that things are on the up and up. And we could not do this each and every week without the one and only Bob Bontrager, who's back at the house. Yes. And tonight's show, as always, is brought to you by the Center for Biblical Unity, Theology Mom, and Family 210 Clothing. Yes. And so um, I got, uh, you got a lot of compliments recently. Um, I don't know if you saw them on Instagram. People no, saying didn't. that they liked your shirt. Which shirt was it? Well, the one that says truth has no color. Yes. People can get that shirt. Yes. Family 210 clothing. Or the, through the CFBU website, either yes. one. Yes. Yeah. Truth has no color. Yes. I yeah. sported that shirt just the other day. <laughs> you don't want to know what my shirt says today. <laughs> you better tell them because they won't right. see the today, whole thing. I know they probably won't. Maybe I have to sit up a little bit. I don't yeah. know. I can't see it, but it says. holy enough to pray for you, hood enough to swing on you. That is so bad. I know I am a work in progress, everyone. Um, This shirt was actually given to me by a CFBU volunteer. Her and her husband said, you know what? Monique needs that shirt. I said, oh my gosh, you do know me. (laughs) So what have you been up to? Um, What have I been up to? I actually have been writing. Mm. Um, I, I feel like I've just been, gosh, underwater with writing. Um, well, speaking of writing, you had yeah. an article come out yesterday. Yeah. In Christianity Today regarding um, George Yancey's book. It was a review of the book. It was a review of the book. Um, so I did that, but I'm preparing for some things that I'm going to be doing over the summer. I'm going to be at Wilberforce weekend through the Colson Center in two weeks. The gosh, just three days after that, I'm going to be at Summit Ministries together. We're going to be at Summit Ministries in Colorado. Um, Right after that, we're going to be at the Women in Apologetics Conference. So there's a lot of writing that is happening and just trying to keep up with the day-to-day of also running a nonprofit. And so things like insurance and taxes and finance meetings and people, you don't, know, people don't know, people don't know, like you don't know the real, like, <laughs> no. And so then yesterday I went and I actually got my hair straightened because I was like, you know what, I'm going to do something that's just to woo, take the load off for a minute. Yeah. Um, so I got my hair cut and straightened and we'll see how long 
it it lasts straight. I mean, don't get me like too excited because if I get too excited, then I'll start to sweat and it'll revert back. If you don't know what revert back means, you should just ask somebody. We sweat don't have out your press. I will sweat out my press. If you don't know that, you got to ask somebody. Yes. So are you going to ask me what I've been doing? Yes. What have you been doing? <laughs> yes. Well, I've been having a lot of meetings. You do? You have? Um, a lot of uh, schools contacting us about doing trainings this summer. That's kind of cool. Uh, Christian schools wanting to, uh, wanting help with policy statements or helping them train their staff and teachers or working with boards on coming up with position statements, just a lot of different things. Yeah. Um, a lot of different schools reaching out to us been having um, several meetings along those lines. So it's good. Um, I think I'm looking forward to seeing which one's emerge and come to the top and who we're going to work with and new friends that we'll make and all of that. But I love doing the conversations with schools and churches because I just really want to help Christ's body to, you know, put in place things to shore up the legacy of of the church and the school. So it'll be around for the next generation. How can we hire well? How can we have fair policies for all? How can we disciple well? Yeah. Hey, how was the homeschool show? (laughs) It was good. Read the shirt, read the shirt. Yeah. um, No, it was good. Uh, Was in Texas last weekend speaking at the Texas state homeschool show. Uh, coalition well. convention and um, it was good yeah I did four talks um, three of them I had I hadn't done mm-hmm. before and um, it was uh, pretty well received I think uh, nobody got up and left in the middle so that's I good. had somebody get up in the middle of one of my talks and leave <laughs> <laughs> so yeah it was it was good uh Let's look. Oh, somebody says your hair looks great. Thanks. It's my Auntie Linda. Hey, Auntie Linda, Uncle Jeff. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I love them. (laughs) All right. So, all right. Well, let's get into it here. We've got a really um, interesting show tonight. Now, we should probably get a little context here because last year, Mm -hmm. around this time, we did a couple of shows with our friend, Eric Muldrow. Yes, Code Code Red Red Conversations. Who um, y'all should be following. Uh, Eric does a lot of content on YouTube of analyzing uh, videos, police shootings, but also um, helping people increase their awareness of their surroundings and showing like negative examples of, Mm -hmm. you know, when you're not paying attention and everything. I find him to be so fair. Yeah. You know, like, oh, this officer was completely out of line or, oh, you know, this suspect was completely out of line and they should have never done that. And if they would have, you know, just complied or, you know, yeah. done whatever, um, they wouldn't have whatever the situation is, you know. So I find him to be very balanced and not, you know, just trying to support and uplift police or, um, you know, just kind of dog on police. He's very like moderate. And, yeah. And, Trying to look yeah. at facts and evidence. Yes. And, and looking at the statistics and things like that. No. And we had him on last year. He did a lot to help us address the big question that's on a lot of people's minds of our, um, particularly black men, are they being hunted down in the streets? Yeah. Um, Cause that's a 
uh, an impression. I think that the, the media definitely. Well, I think that that was actually the comment from maybe LeBron James, um, mm, yeah. basketball player, but I think it was him who said, you know, he didn't feel safe because black men are being right. hunted down. So we kind of tackled that last year and Eric just broke down all of these different statistics and studies and, um, you know, is policing an example of large scale systemic racism? Yes. So that's not the question we're going to be not the question tonight. tonight. So if people are interested in that question, go back and check out our conversation with Eric. Um, but we should also say probably up front that we also realize that for some people, the policing conversation is difficult. Yeah. You know, some people have had negative experiences with the police or they've heard stories from family members, friends that have had negative experiences. And we realize it's a complex issue and yet we don't want to avoid the conversation no. either. No, and just because it's difficult. Yeah. We never want to avoid a difficult conversation. I always say, Hey, Christians do hard things. Like we, we can have hard conversations. We can do some of those hard things. Um, but we do want to do those hard things from a very biblical per- perspective. So I don't want to just, um, you know, address a hard thing or a hard topic based from a cultural standpoint. I want to say, what does the scripture have to say about this thing first? Yeah. So we're going to just keep chipping away at the policing issue. We've got a couple other ideas for shows that, you know, we'll do in the future. But tonight, the, the conversation is going to be about police reform. Yes. And so that's what we'll be focusing on tonight. And we're going to be introducing the family to a friend of ours for the first time, um, uh, Mark Perez. He's now retired from LAPD. We're going to get to know him a little bit. Mark has an amazing resume. Um, he's eminently qualified to help us yes. talk about this as we'll, get, we'll find out in just a minute here. So you guys are going to enjoy Mark. I've known Mark for about 20 years and um, introduced him to Monique about a year and a half, two years ago. More than that. Uh, we I went think, out to lunch. and Yeah. When I was still struggling with police and policing issues and, you know, how do I consider police? I grew up in South Central Los Angeles. And um, my mom like gave us the talk about, you know, how, if you're ever pulled over, what do you do and how do you do it and why and all of that. And so um, just coming from that mindset was able to sit down and have a conversation um, with Mark about, you know, policing and the realities of it and what he sees, you know, or what he saw being behind the scenes of it all. Yeah. That was very helpful to you. Yeah. I thought it was super helpful. We had a, a great conversation. Yeah, so we're excited for all of you to meet Mark tonight. So let's uh, bring him on here and uh, introduce him. Hey, Mark. Hey. Hello, Monique. Hello. Hi. Uh, good to see you both. <laughs> good to see you. And I'm so excited to finally have you on the show. And this is something I've been wanting to do for a long time. So I'm glad the circumstances have kind of aligned now that, that we can have this <laughs> conversation. So. Good. Good for all of us. Yeah. Maybe let's just start, uh, since you're new to our viewers, tell us a little bit about your background in law enforcement and, you know, why you're qualified to talk on the issue of police reform. Sure. Well, first of all, I've spent 36 years in policing, started in the late 70s, ended around uh, 2015. Uh, Half that time was spent in the field. The other half was spent as an executive. Uh, The important features, you know, there's a lot that goes on in 36 years, but some of the important features of of the the work that I did was some of the assignments I had that had to do with internal affairs or professional standards, uh, all of which looks at 
How do you go about investigating officers who are accused of misconduct? How do you design policies and procedures? And uh, for that seven years, I was also overseeing the officer-involved shooting group, Force Investigation Division. Uh, th that's where every, every shooting that occurred in the city of Los Angeles, where somebody got hit or somebody got seriously injured, even if they weren't shot, was investigated very, very thoroughly. So I've seen literally hundreds of those investigations. And if we get into what those are about, uh, I think your viewers would actually be quite shocked to know how deep those go. I've also spent time with other agencies. So that includes agencies outside the United States. Uh, I went to um, Armenia, for example, on a mission with the State Department. And the purpose of that mission was to, to bring corruption, to reduce the corruption in the Armenian government, and particularly their police forces. And so there are members of the uh, United Nations, as well as other people who are there as part of our delegation to help avoid and prevent corruption in, in Armenia and the Ar Armenian police. I had the same invitation down to Mexico. It's invited by the federal government of Mexico, also through the State Department. And I've had a contact with a lot of other places. So we've had people when I was working for the police department still from far away as Hong Kong, uh, New Zealand, Australia, and countries all over the world that would come in and visit. And we would talk about that. How do you prevent an organization from going corrupt? I also participated in a very long multi-year study that resulted in the document that was presented to the Department of Justice. It was a project that was funded by the Department of Justice on the um, best practices in investigating police officers. And that document is still alive today. It's still on the website of the Department of Justice. And I've some of my friends who are consultants in policing and expert witnesses say that it's still being used in court. Uh, I've done court work as well, by the way. Uh, expert witness in police practices and, and uh, presented cases in federal and in local courts. And I've spent a lot of years, about 11 years, actually teaching internal affairs investigations and how to, how to prevent an agency from going south. Uh, in, uh, for the state of California, Peace Officer Standards and Training, uh, I could keep on going, but I think as we go along and when we're talking, uh, I may be able to explain some of my assignments and some of the work I did that's relevant to my my positions or my thoughts on the issues. Wow, you definitely come with quite a, a resume. Yeah. I can say that for sure. Um, I think that's one of the things that was helpful to me when we sat down and talked was your, one, your, your view on things, but that you had actually been there and served and you had done all of these different things and you were able to give input from different positions. And so, yeah. Well, in particular, just all your work in overcoming corruption. Yeah. And, and internal investigation that you have, for a chunk of your career, really been a stand for, hey, we need to make sure that we are doing things fairly and rightly and even helping other governments do better and prevent corruption, weed out corruption. Your work in internal um, investigations, I think you're, you, you have a unique resume to help us talk about, uh, yeah. about reforms. I think... Um... Yeah, what I would say is just policing. 
you know, how do we police justly is what um, I think I took away from our conversation. And even in hearing you speak right now, it just harkens me back to an idea of just policing. But let me ask you this, from a Christian standpoint or standard, why is policing important? Yeah, because our, yeah. our culture is having a whole conversation yeah, right like, now about getting rid of the police. We just need to do away with the police. I said, no, 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 no. <laughs> why, why is policing important? Well, I guess the best way to test that question <clears throat> is to ask what would happen if there were no police. So if you had no restraint on the sinful desires of really sinful people, what would it look like? Well, it might look like what it looked like just before the flood, you know, where every person was thinking only evil thoughts continually. Mm -hmm. And so if you don't have some kind of restraint on the people who are doing the most evil, people who are doing the worst things, then you will have chaos and you will have all sorts of anarchy and it will be terribly, terribly destructive. The Lord put <clears throat> authorities and allows governments to exist. Indeed, he's the author of governments in order to protect the people. But important to that, and particularly when we talk about police reform, is to talk about whether you protect the people from the police as well. And Romans 13 talks about that. There, there are people who have people who oversee those. So there's nobody without oversight. And that's probably the thing that I see from a Christian perspective, which is the most protective of all. So if you have no police, you have no protection. But when you have police, you've got to have protection from the police because they have a huge amount of power. So the power has to be guarded as well as exercised in order to protect the population from the evils that we know will go crazy and just completely out of control if we allow Satan to just completely operate the way he wants to. Would you say that some of that guarding from the police are things like body cameras or reports or things like that? Or like, are there other <clears throat> mechanisms that you're referring to? Well, there, that's part of the mechanism. It's very complicated. Uh, probably the most protective feature of any package of protecting the people from the police is the culture of the police department and the culture of the politics that governs the police department. And that's where the biggest problem in police reform occurs. Because if you, if you have a, a, an attempt to make police officers effective, doing that is, a, is extremely complicated. So you have training, but you also have cultivation. So you're not merely training officers to perform particular tasks. You're you have to cultivate them to think a particular way. And part of that is to be treated in a way that's respectful, but it goes both ways. So if you wanna see a good example of how police don't do it well, go back to the 60s and the 70s. And you look in the 1960s and 70s and policing was all about restraint and clamping down on people. So there was no real idea of any kind of community policing where the police work with the community to solve problems. It was about actually constraining people to particular areas. And, and when Parker was in power in the city of Los Angeles, for example, he said, well, you know, the 
that some people should be in the South Los Angeles and we need to help them stay there and, and keep them there. And people in the North End or center of Los Angeles, you know, the different Hispanic groups and white groups. It's a, well, if you're using the police to enforce that kind of segregation, what do you expect is going to happen? Bad things are going to happen. But when you have that kind of belief coming from a chief of police and the culture at the time accepted that, uh, you end up treating the police differently. You're expecting them to do things like uh, have quotas on arrests. That's not a good idea. If, if, you're, if your whole idea of success is how many people you can throw in jail, then you've missed the point of why you have a police department. Uh, the police departments to work with the police, excuse me, the police departments work with the people to reduce the effects of criminals. And sometimes you do it without putting criminals in jail. Sometimes you do it by uh, hardening the targets, but more importantly, you can't work with a, a public if the public just sees you as harsh and detached. And the police agencies at the time were harsh, harsh and detached from their officers. So it's, this is a rather difficult metaphor to use, but it's as if when you beat the dog, what do you expect the dog to do? You know, the dog's gonna bite. And so you had a lot of that going on in the 60s and 70s, police departments did not treat their officers well. And as a matter of fact, when you go into the 1970s, uh, the police departments were very aggressive in, in trying to root out officers that they didn't like. Uh, they called them headhunters, you know, the internal affairs people. And it was so bad that even the ACLU recognized that officers needed to have some rights. Wow. And so you had a, a, what was then a momentous act of police reform, which was to restrain not the police against the people, but the management against the officers, which was the first time in the history of the United States. And this was in California, where you had a peace officer bill of rights, which protected officers from all sorts of things that, that go on in investigations. Um, we could get into it if we wanted to, but the bottom line is if you mistreat the officers enough, um, they will not behave properly. They'll do things to evade capture and detection. And you don't want that. So one of the problems that we had <clears throat> for decades started to slow down when you had that reform where you're saying, okay, let's, let's treat the officers like human beings to start with. And then we'll treat the officers, teach the officers to treat everybody else that way as well. Uh, that actually did work that it started to change the way that the officers behaved and the way they, they viewed people. Uh, you also had a lot of, a lot of uh, training that went on inside the police departments to moderate their ideas of what their role was. So it went from being policing as a restraining system to policing as a cooperative venture with the public. So you went from a professional model to a community relations model. Um, that's, that's been very slow in rolling out, but that's more like that now than it has ever been in the past. Although you have things like um, riots that slow that down. That's cyclical, by the way. I, I, I hate to say that, but it is cyclical. It goes in cycles and, and it'll continue to do that. But in terms of um, police reform and what we've seen in the past, the, the first thing you have to do is to recognize that if the culture of the police department is the wrong culture, the officers will pe behave improperly. Mm -hmm. And if the, if the politicians expect a certain thing from the officers 
either tacitly or explicitly, uh, the police chiefs will respond to it. And in the past, it was constrain certain groups. Now it's be thoughtful and be, I guess you'd say, um, kind, just, um, respectful to people, and efficient at the same time. Uh, it can be done, but the, some of the ways that politicians want to do it thwart the effort that they're, they say they're trying to do. That's helpful because you're really putting us on a path here of helping us understand what reforms have already happened, Mm -hmm. you know, in the culture from the sixties and seventies shifts that have been, are, have already been made. One thing I would just be curious to hear both you and Monique talk about is um, you were on the law enforcement side, you know, back in the Rodney King riots in the early nineties, Monique, saw those riots out her front door uh, when she was- I wonder if I drove by your house. I was down there. (laughs) (laughs) Out in South Central LA and and watching, I mean, the um, Reginald Denny got pulled from his truck just a couple blocks from her house Mm. and um, martial law happened and, you know, movements were restricted. And, but I'm just wondering kind of from your point of view in that, looking back on that now on the Rodney King situation, did you see that that actually did have a good outcome hmm. in changing police procedures or was it just kind of all make believe and, and, you know, just sort of cosmetic changes? Like, was there actually a good outcome that came about after the, the King riots? Well, it depends on, on your perspective. So in some respects, what it did was it changed police training, and that was good. Uh, it, what it did was it helped the police departments realize that there are certain cases where you can use something other than a baton. Uh, I, for example, there was one of the tactics that was developed after that. We should maybe even for our younger viewers explain what happened in the Rodney King situation. Maybe that would be necessary. Okay, so you had a, a police pursuit. Of a, of a man who had been running away from the, the officers. Uh, he got out of the car, some others got out of the car. The others that got out of the car obeyed the officers and got proned out and arrested and there was no incident with them. Um, the, the one gentleman who did not was named Rodney King. He resisted, the officers were able to knock him to the ground and he wouldn't stay still, at least that's the way the story goes. And so the officers continued to use batons on him and to try and get him to stop moving around and resisting. Um, that was captured on video and it looked horrible. Everybody who looked at it, including the officers who saw it on TV later on said, oh my God, I can't believe I just saw that. I mean, it was mm-hmm. it was really the video seen around the world. Now everybody, you know, these days we got a camera phone, everyone's yeah. filming the police. Yeah. But, you know, I think back then that it, for your community, I'm imagining that that was like, well, shocked. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because it was a, I want to say the guy who shot it was like an amateur photographer, you know, up in the valley and just happened, just to, get happened to look out his window and pulled his camera when he saw what That's was right. going on. But from okay. your standpoint in your community, was it like, oh, finally somebody got it on tape that, you know, something that you felt like, oh, this happens every day or. I didn't feel like it happened every day. I, okay. had, been, I had heard the stories that this happens every day. 
that that this is what you know police do this is what white people do and so i had heard the stories but this was the first time where i actually saw it in real time okay so mark what you're saying is one thing that came out of that situation was training different oh we don't always have to use batons so i interrupted you but i just want to Give some context there for people. Well, we don't we don't have to go into detail on all the training, but the point yeah. is that it, it did actually affect police training, and it affected it in a good way because there are more efficient and effective ways of doing that when you have a group of officers. We actually use less force and subdue the person much faster, which is good for the officers and the suspect and the public. So I, I hate to say that something good came out of something like Rodney King, but actually something did come out of it that was fruitful for the officers and the public. And it put a lot more emphasis on figuring out ways of using less force rather than just whatever force was available at the time to be more thoughtful in applying force, particularly when you had uh, an overwhelming number of officers. So if you have four or five officers on one person, you really don't need to be using the baton. And the baton was at the time when, when, uh, when this happened, even the chief of police who was on, on the witness stand during the trial said these officers were not well trained this was poor training and we're going to redesign our training so you look at what happened and it wasn't just a bunch of malicious officers it was officers who were using the tactics they were trained to do and the the training afterwards would make that same kind of incident not happen again so in that respect um, something fruitful did come from it and a lot of a lot of discussions came out of that because you know that what the police department at the time wasn't all white. You know, there are plenty of black officers, and, and they were in su- supervision, they were in uh, management, and and they were aware of the d- discussions that were going on, and they that that was really an important point for the the police department at the time because when that happened, uh, it allowed a lot of people to say things that they would might may, might not otherwise have said. Like, guys, are you really sure that you, you, this isn't the way things happen in places where nobody's looking? And so there was a lot of reflection, and it was a very good thing that uh, a lot of openness came from that. And I think it, what it did was it uh, created a sort of social conscience within the police department and other agencies as well. Now, two years ago, we kind of went through a similar reckoning, I think, as a mm-hmm. country um, in the wake of George Floyd there was a lot of conversations about even um, using social workers to de-escalate situations instead of the police. Um, I know Monique's got certain feelings about that, which she might she might share. But uh, <laughs> you know, uh, from her twenty years of working in social service, I'm I'm wondering though, Mark, do you what do you think about that strategy? Do you think that there could be some situations where that strategy could be useful or is 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 that just not a good way to go? Well, the, the, the term have, a, have somebody come in and de-escalate is vague. What are you de-escalating? They're not, the situations are very, very significantly. So if you have two people who are on the verge of punching each other out or getting in a you know, knockdown, drag out fight, you don't want a social worker there. That's a danger, that's a hazard to that social worker. But if you just have two people who are not getting along and they, for some reason, think that the police are going to solve that problem, then a social worker would be okay. The, the bigger question is, what's the frequency? 
So when, when the police get called to situations where people say, well, you know, we should have social workers there, how often would a social worker actually be useful? And I think it's not very often. And the reason is that police usually get called because one or both of the people want some kind of enforcement action taken. And when you want enforcement action taken, you're not gonna call a social worker to have that done. So that's why the police get involved. It's, it's nice to say, well, we would like to de-escalate this, but until you're there and you're actually watching it unfold, you really don't have a clue what, what you're talking about. And most of the people who say, well, we should de-escalate this and it shouldn't happen this way. Well, um, show up at one of those scenes where people are screaming at each other and MFing you and, and telling you they're gonna beat you or this and do that and so forth. And then say, oh, well, please just calm down. You know, please don't say that. It's not going to work. Those people are already beyond that threshold. So at that point, what the officers need to do is they, and they're trained to do that, which is to calm people down, separate them, minimize the degree to which they're trying to antagonize each other and see if they can get some kind of resolution, at least temporarily, so that they're not hurting each other already on the verge of hurting each other. It's at that point where the social worker can become very fruitful but you don't want the social worker to be in there at first. So that you don't want to say, all right, look, we're going to send them to all of the calls where there are some kind of disputes. Bad news. That's a very, very bad policy. But if they were on call and an officer could get on the radio and say, hey, uh, you know, we could use somebody here to follow up on what we started. That to me makes sense. Whether there are enough social workers on the planet to do that is a good question because there are more disputes than there are social workers to resolve them. But at least it's a tactic, it's a, it's a method of solving some of the problems. But just remember, you have to be realistic. People who are in these situations to begin with just don't handle life well. And a social worker working one time or even twice or three times isn't gonna solve people's problems that were developed from their infancy or until they were you know, uh, adolescents or adults. So it's a complicated problem, but it's not going to get solved by putting social workers in the place of police officers at, at, at first. And whether there's enough of them to do it in follow-up is an open question that society has to ask whether they want to spend that money and whether they think it's going to work. Yeah, I'm with you. I agree. I, um, I mean, there's already been a couple of social workers who have been killed going in, going first. Um, but I don't think that that's the role of the social worker. Like de-escalation techniques and all that. Yes, those are a special skill set. But like you're saying, they have to be handled within the time of de-escalation. People don't understand that de-escalation is a window of time. Yeah. So if you if if you decide, well, let me go in with my de-escalation, which is, you know, to be fair, it is more than, hey, everybody calm down. It's, it is more than that. But it, it, it still can't take the place of an officer who is armed and ready to be able to handle what de-escalation will never be able to handle. And there is a point where de-escalation techniques will not be able to handle some of the things that a lot of the things actually that officers are facing. And so saying, you know, we need to send in social workers first takes a lot of conversation mm -hmm. each um 
each incident would need to be looked at individually. I don't know that we have the money or the manpower to be able to or the time, like to be able to say, okay, is this a social worker conversation or is this a police conversation? I think about the, um, the officer, I want to say it was in Ohio and he showed up on the scene and there was a, a girl and um, she was a black girl. She was a teen and she was literally in the lunge to stab another teen girl and he shot her. And people were like, where was the social worker? Why, they, why didn't they send in the social worker for de-escalation? Who going to de-escalate that? Don't send me. Like, <laughs> sorry, just let's just be honest. Don't send me. Because at that point, we have, we're, we're way beyond a conversation of de-escalation. We are now at a life-threatening moment. And social work is not meant to address that. That is something that an officer is meant for, for um, to protect and to serve, to protect the individual that is about to potentially have their life taken. But there, there's a lot of conflation going on, like, hey, well, the social worker can't handle that. The devil is a lie. The social worker cannot handle it. And not this one. You know what I mean? Like, we don't send people in for that. We have to be careful of what we're requesting and think about it in a more nuanced position than just you know, we don't want black and brown bodies killed. So let's send in the social worker. Well, many times social workers are black and brown bodies. And if they go into a situation where it's already hostile and people are, have already gone outside of their window of tolerance, you know, what you're going to find is that whoever has the gun is going to be the one who comes out on top. But what do you think there's something though, to Mark's point of, well, maybe the social worker doesn't go in first, but you know, on the back end, you know, there, there might be some help there. But I don't see that any different than what we already do. What we're doing. So okay. let's say, you know, something happens and people are arrested and there's domestic violence and all, all these things. There are social workers who then come in. Okay. Who then come in to assist children, to assist husbands or wives, to be able to get things cleared up. You have, um, you know, if there's like things that happen and, and courts are involved and all that, how do we mediate situations? How do we move forward? What are the counseling things that need to be involved? And so I'm like, I don't know, maybe Mark, maybe you disagree with me, but I, I kind of think that we already have a process that involves the social worker um, post an incident. Yeah, you do when you have somebody arrested. <clears throat> Certainly you have that problem or if they're already in the social system to begin with and i'm not suggesting a particular method of doing it what i was getting at was the point that the social worker can't go in first and that some of the situations are irresolvable that you're not going to solve a person's problem who's who has very substantial um, emotional or, or mental problems uh, in, a, in one visit of a social worker, mm -hmm. and certainly not of one visit of police officers who are well-trained. So it's, it's a bigger problem, and it's naive to think that just hand-waving the, the, the term have a social worker in there is going to solve anything. I don't think it will. That's good. Um, did you want to go back to a previous point? No, it's fine. Okay. We'll just All, right. Fine. All right. All um, right. So there's this website and I sent this to Mark ahead of time so he could take a look at it. And I've seen a few um, pretty prominent uh, big name evangelicals putting forward this website as, you know, something pointing to something with regard to police reform. 
and looking at it and saying, you know, these are things that Christians should get behind as police reform. And um, I, I, I don't come from a law enforcement family. I just, I don't know that much about law enforcement. So I look at these things and, you know, maybe I can represent the average person in this conversation. I have no idea if these are good ideas or not. The name of the website is called 8catwait.org. And it's, uh, I gave it to Bob to, to put up there. And so if you can scroll down a little bit, Bob, um, there's some, some reforms uh, there in those boxes of what reforms they're, they're suggesting. Um, but this, I don't know if these are good ideas or not. Monique read through some of them and she said, well, I think some of these we already have. Uh, I don't know. I'm just curious Mark, what if you have any thoughts about these reforms? Do you see these as potentially helpful? Some of them, some of them we already have. I, I'm just curious if you have any general thoughts on this. I do. I think uh, probably some uh, well-intentioned people putting this together who haven't got a clue about what they're talking about. And I don't mean that in a mean-spirited way, but truly, when I look at this and I see some of the things that are posted, and I'm, I'm looking at the site on my other screen over here, so I apologize for looking away. Yeah. But if you're looking at the, the diagram that's actually a chart, it, has, uh, it says requires de-escalation. Well, the requirement for de-escalation has been around for 20 years or more. So that's really nothing new. The next one has a use of force continuum. The use of force continuum has been around for at least 30 years, maybe even longer than that. It's been propagated in police training for decades. So I'm not quite sure why they would think that that's something um, novel. The, the question is, what goes on in that continuum? So you know, if they're, if they're claiming that's some kind of novelty, they're wrong. The next one is the ban chokeholds and strangleholds. Um, strangleholds have never been a, a, never been anything that the police departments wanted to do. It's it's ineffective. A stranglehold it, uh, puts the the uh, arm against the throat. Same thing with a chokehold. And when you put your when you put your arm against the throat, actually that's a, a chokehold. Uh, all it does is cut off the air and turns the person into a, a, a panic. And at that point, the fight's even worse because the person is absolutely, I mean, you turn your oxygen off and you're going to fight to get that oxygen back. It's like being thrown in the water and starting to drown. You panic. So that's always been something that at least police agencies that are sophisticated banned a long, long time ago, 40 years, maybe longer than that. The stranglehold, which is really kind of an odd name to put it, uh, it should, you know, if you're going to use the term stranglehold, you have to define it. Yeah. There was a term, the upper body carotid restraint, and it goes by different names. And what that is, when you put the arm across the, the, the neck on the side to restrict the blood flow to the brain or to restrict the blood flow out of the brain. And what that does is it renders the person unconscious without permanent injury. And uh, that's been banned in a lot of places since the 1980s. Uh, a lot of places didn't ban it for good reason because it was very effective in preventing people from getting hit by batons, having uh, trauma from other kinds of uh, direct 
strikes. You know, if you have to beat somebody into submission rather than rendering them unconscious and letting them, you know, when you put the handcuffs on them while they're still unconscious, and it only lasts for about 10 seconds, uh, you save them from a lot of injury. The problem with the what they call a stranglehold, and I'm presuming they're talking about that carotid restraint, is that there have been a few deaths as, uh, that were that correlated with them. In other words, somebody that was applied and the person died afterwards. And so they correlated the death with that particular use of force. And there were, there were political influences to make it look like that was the cause without, and while they were ignoring the fact that these people also had drugs in their bodies and had other physical ailments. So there were many of those deaths um, may have happened just from the, a, a, a protracted fight all by itself without using that, that uh, carotid restraint. Nevertheless, uh, it has been banned in most places. Uh, the state of California, for example, just passed a law to ban it. Uh, I think my own personal opinion is that if it's used properly, and it was used properly most of the time, it actually prevents more injuries than it causes. But politically, it's just not going to survive. So uh, I look at that and I say, okay, if you think that's really uh, a reform, okay, it's been there for a long time. Uh, requires warning before shooting. Um, you have to ask yourself, why would anybody come up with that? I mean, you don't just shoot people because uh, you have 15 or 20 seconds to think about it. Most police shootings occur because there's something immediate. It's a snap decision. Uh, they, the, the person makes some movement that fits a pattern that the officer has been taught that corresponds to a deadly threat. When that happens, you don't have time to say, hey, would you please not pull that gun out and kill me? Because by the time you're done talking or by the time you're done warning, you're dead. Mm -hmm. So when I said that people who have put this up there may be well-intentioned, you know, they're hoping that you warn somebody and then they'll, they'll give up, that's naive. It's not even close to being practical or real. Uh, when you have a shooting of a situation like uh, somebody pulls a gun out on you, there's no talking. It just it happens in less than one and a half seconds from start to finish. So are there conditions when you might think of using it? Well, you might think of it if you have somebody who's armed, let's say, with a knife instead of a gun. And they're far enough away where you can tell them if you get any closer, you will get shot. Uh, you know, that's, but that depends on the distance. If they're right on you, you've got to shoot them immediately because they can kill you with a knife just as fast as they can kill you with a gun if they're close to you. And close to you means within a couple of steps. Mm -hmm. So the, if they're far enough away and you can say, look, don't drop the, drop the knife. If you come at me, you're going to die. Do it. Say that. Um, but we're taught to do that anyway. Everybody's taught to do that. So I don't know that that's anything novel. The problem is, if you say requires warning shots before shooting in all cases, that's that's absolutely unrealistic. The next one is uh, restrict shooting at moving vehicles. Uh, this one is a particularly good one. Uh, shooting at moving vehicles is, is generally speaking, ineffective. Uh, if, if you shoot at a moving vehicle, several things can happen. One, you got a lot of stray rounds running downrange, and, yeah. and you're, you're putting people in in, in a hazardous situation that you really don't want to. There are rare, rare situations where it's, it's a useful thing to do 
but they're so rare that the policy itself could have that exception built into it. So for example, if you're out in an open area and somebody comes on with it, let's say a four wheeler shows up and you're in a football field and they're, they're just circling around and they're trying to run you over repeatedly. At that point, you can't keep running away because the truck can keep going faster than you can keep running. And at that point, you don't have a choice. But all the rest of the times, you know, suspects trying to get away or, you know, they're shooting at the vehicle, they're shooting from the vehicle while they're driving away or something like that. Um, that's probably not a good time to be shooting at the moving vehicle. And the policy that would forbid that or at least restrict it is a wise policy. Many organizations have that now and have had, I know Los Angeles Police Department's had that for um, at least 10 years, no longer than that, about 15 years. And, and it was always one where, even before that, it was shooting at moving vehicles is perilous and may be fruitless. So th that makes sense. That one's one that I think actually does make sense. Um, requires exhausting all other means before shooting. That's been part of the, the law and part of policies all over the country for as long as they've been, well, actually since the 1970s. And it doesn't mean that you, if it says result, re requires exhausting all other means, um, that, that I don't know what in the world you would be exhausting if somebody pulls out a gun immediately and what means are there? There aren't any other means. So there's nothing to exhaust. And so I guess they're saying, thinking something like you punch them or do something like that. I don't know. But that one doesn't make any sense to me, exhausting all other means before shooting. Um, the only time that makes sense <clears throat> is in a situation where there's time. So if, if the person's far enough away, doesn't have a pistol or a rifle or a handgun or something like that, or even a bow and arrow, because that, that shoots just about as fast as a, a pistol in, in, in practical terms, because the arrow goes so fast. But if they have a knife or a club or something like that, uh, the officer should try to exhaust other means. Is there, are, can they use a taser? Can they use... Um, some other device technologies are, are evolving on that. Um, it makes sense to try to use other less lethal, less, less than lethal force, but that's been built into the law and the policies for decades. Uh, it's nothing new. I would just say exhaust requires exhausting all other means when practical. I would add that to it because there are times when it is not. And the last one, uh, all right, there's that two more <clears throat> ones, a duty to intervene. Um, that has been a policy for as long as I've been in policing. So whether po police officers obeyed that and actually responded to it is a different question, but there is a Maybe duty to intervene. define what that is, the duty mm -hmm. to intervene, because that... Yeah, that the duty to intervene is a duty to stop other officers from doing what the officers know is wrong. So if, let's say a suspect has got his... He's handcuffed, he's on the ground, he's not fighting, he's not doing anything, and another officer walks up and starts kicking him. Okay, the officers who are there have a duty to pull that officer away from him and report him. That's a duty to intervene. You intervene to protect the suspect from an attack against an officer that's unjustified. That's their duty to intervene. So that policy and those policies have existed for decades. Um, for as long as the, the 36 years that I was in, that policy existed on the Los Angeles Police Department and other places. When I was teaching uh, police management, 
all over the state, um, all the departments had that. And it was built into the policy, but not all of the officers would do it. So having a, a culture where they would do that is more important than the rule itself, because the rule itself is only as good as the officers who are going to obey it. The last one is requires comprehensive reporting. Uh, I can only speak for the Los Angeles Police Department, but we've had comprehensive reporting since the 1980s. And I mean comprehensive reporting of every use of force had a report that attended it. And those became statistical. And there was it was more than anything to determine which techniques and tactics were the most efficient. And were there particular individual officers who are more prone to using force than others? And if so, why? So it became an investigative tool, not in the sense of misconduct, but an investigative tool to determine whether somebody needs training or whether they stay in the police work. Because if you get somebody who resorts to, to violence every single opportunity, that's probably somebody you need to look at um, moving out of police work. And so it was looked at then. And I completely agree that comprehensive reporting if that means any use of force where somebody uh, is likely to get injured, then I would agree with that. And the, they should keep statistics on that and they should tie that. And, and what that doesn't say is that it should be tied to personnel metrics. And that's where you make your money on this. That's how you get your police reform. If you just report stuff and then just stuff the reports in a drawer, so what? Okay, you've got comprehensive reporting. But if it isn't until you tie that to some kind of metric, like a, what I just mentioned, you know, which officers are together when the force occurs? Which officers are alone when the force occurs? Does this occur when the people who they're using the force on are of a particular race? Does it occur under particular assignments? Those kind of data are extremely important and very, very useful in assessing whether your use of force policy is effective, your training is effective, or whether your officer is effective, your supervision is effective. None of that gets talked about when you talk about police reform, but when you're on the inside and, and my position as an executive looking at these kinds of things for, for decades, you realize that all of that has to go together and anything less than that is simplistic. And that requires comprehensive reporting is simplistic if it doesn't tie it to metrics and to uh, associating it with all the kinds of factors that would determine the efficiency and effectiveness of the officers and their training. You have a lot of good points. Um, looking at the the chart itself and um, the reforms that um, this site is looking to bring about, you know, I think for you know some of them, you know, just like you were saying, yes, like this this is something that you know we should promote comprehensive prom um, you know reporting is something that we should promote. And then there are others where you know, like you said, these things need to be evaluated on a on a case by case basis, or it needs to be more nuanced. What What do you mean? You know that. Um, let me see. I'm um, require warning before shooting, but if if somebody's shooting at me and then I have to shoot back, like you know, or or <laughs> did, did you yeah. did you think I wouldn't or shoot? A, you know, it's a split second decision. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not always time for a warning. It's not practical. Well, I mean, I think if you. And I could be wrong and I'm, I'm open to that possibility, but it's like, if you were shot by a police officer, I feel like there's very little um, chance that you wouldn't know that the possibility of you getting shot was there. 
Does that make sense? Like, yeah, yeah there might be a one-off, you know, situation where I had no clue that, that officer was going to shoot me, you know? And I, I think that, that that is something that we can look at. But by and large, when an officer, um, you know, takes his gun out of the holster, the, the usual goal is to shoot. And the person who gets shot usually is doing something that is... I don't want to say shot worthy. That's not right. But, you know, like they're, they're doing something that would be illegal or a threat or something like that. Does that make sense? Like, I, I just don't feel like. It does. But when you break down shootings, you know, you, you have to break them down into different parts. So one part of them is the drawing and exhibiting. That's, that's actually part of the, the assessment. Was the drawing and exhibiting proper? Was it necessary? Mm-hmm. So not all times when you draw your weapon are you necessarily going to shoot it or else there'd be just a lot of shootings and there aren't as many as people think there are. Right. So the other thing is when you're <clears throat> when you're looking at police shootings the way I have and, and the way I've looked at it is overseeing the investigations of police officer shootings. And you look at the videos, you look at the transcripts of the interviews, you listen to the the, the tapes of the, or the recordings of the officers and the way they are describing what happened. If the suspect survives, you get to hear what the suspect said. You get to hear what everybody else said. And you look at the forensic evidence. And what you get from that is that most of the time when the shootings occurred, it occurred because they had to. Mm-hmm. The, the, officer, the big question that you ask an officer, and it may not be in this exact word, but it is why. First is, what did you see? What did you perceive? And then the next question is, so why did you shoot? Why did you shoot round number one? Why did you shoot round number two, et cetera? You go round by round. That's the, the investigations go bullet by bullet. You wow. have to account for every single one. And so the, the point of that is that when you're evaluating whether somebody's uh, shooting is good or not good, the quality of the investigation that I've seen over hundreds of investigations has shown me that police officers don't just pull the trigger because it's fun. It's not fun. The investigation puts that officer through a ringer. Uh, It is not a comfortable feeling to be on the other side of an investigation because it's a homicide investigation. If you kill somebody, it's a homicide. Is it a justifiable homicide? That's the question. Hmm. So the officer feels like a suspect. When he's interviewed, he has a lawyer with him. So it's not like uh, the officer shoots somebody and it's on TV and he you know, goes back to the station and then goes has beers with his buddy afterwards. No, it's an ordeal. So officers are not keen to shoot people. They really don't want to do it. It's not a fun thing. And, and many officers will tell you that they've told other officers in, in debriefs they felt horrible afterwards. And so it gets around, you know, officers don't, they don't give their, each other high fives and say, yeah, great job. No, it doesn't go like that. Uh, occasionally you'll find some, someone will do something stupid like that, but the rest of them, no, it's rare when somebody is that kind of a flamboyant fool. So the point is the, the, the shooting, if you look at the actual investigations, officers are not just shooting willy nilly and they're certainly not pulling the guns out willy nilly because they know even drawing and exhibiting is its own question. Hmm. Yeah, I think, um, sorry, another thing that that you highlighted was actually about culture. 
and how if, you know, you have all of these reforms and things like that in place, but, you know, people are willing to cover up or to have somebody's back or to, you know, hide the reporting or just put the, bit my tongue, sorry, put the reporting in a drawer, you know, and never really investigate or look into these things. Well, that's not helpful either. So making sure that there is a healthy culture where people are held accountable and, um, you know, and they, they understand like this is not just for the good of the citizens. Yes, it is for the good of the citizens. Yes, we want our citizens to be protected and to feel safe, but it's also for the protection of the precinct um, or that that culture of police in that area. So I thought that was um, very helpful as well. I think too, when we're in conversations with people about justice issues and, and you know, one of the main questions that people often have toward us at outreaches is, well, is it policing itself, you know, a, a systemically racist and, and, you know, you're not here to address that, but that I think one of a big piece of our answer to that question is, you know, there's so many jurisdictions and, and many of those jurisdictions have their own policies, procedures, but they also have their own culture. And that's why having a, a, a very just culture is so important because you, even if you have good policies in place, if you have corrupt leadership, mm-hmm. um, then that is going to create problems. But that doesn't mean that the entire system, they're all policing everywhere is corrupt. And so we have to really think about these things. And I think what I'm getting from this conversation is actually how important these internal investigations are because that's a critical way of protecting the citizens and that it's actually important for citizens to report and give accurate testimony about bad interactions with the police because if we're going to weed out corrupt police culture or corrupt cops, we have to, you know, be able to report those people and think like, yeah, it will be looked into. Yes. And certainly the the whole internal affairs process is is an interesting process. One of the things that I remember looking at when I was overseeing those kinds of investigations was the, the frequency in which we couldn't prove one way or the other. So there were no independent witnesses. You know, you can't just take the officer's word for it. It ends up being not sustained. You know, we we don't know, and and that those are those are troubling. We don't like those, but we occasionally would find cases where we could get evidence, and and sometimes we found evidence that the people who were making the allegations were lying. Now, I remember one case where we had one person who constantly was doing it. And, and what well, the public doesn't recognize is that there are a lot of people who just hate the cops and they're going to make up things and just try to make the officers' lives miserable. And so internal affairs investigations really is de- designed to find the truth. And if it's the, that the citizen is lying, okay, then that's the way it goes. Can't do anything about it, uh, except maybe a lawsuit by the officer against the citizen for defamation if it goes to that. But th- the officers themselves... Uh, need to, the good thing about it is that the officers themselves, when they're vindicated, are truly vindicated. And when they're found to be uh, 
sustained. You know, the, the allegations are sustained against them. Then it puts them into a process where they have the opportunity, the, the organization has the opportunity to assess whether the officer needs to stay in police work. And so the, you're right, Monique, that the, the internal affairs investigations are crucial. The quality of the investigators is crucial. The training that they get, and then also the the their, their techniques. You know, I, I taught that for years. There are good ways of doing it, and there are some really bad ways of doing it. And so people don't realize that they just well, you, you send us internal affairs and we'll get done right. Well, if you if you are part of an agency that doesn't do very many of them, you're you're likely to hand that off to somebody who's not experienced. It's not as good of a situation as someplace like you know in Los Angeles. It's, hundreds of investigators who've got a lot of experience and they do a much better job. So I guess the, the bottom line to that is we hope that no matter where they are, that the agency itself will work as hard as it takes to get to the truth of the matter when a citizen reports misconduct, both for the officer's sake and for the citizen's sake. You're right, it is crucial. Yeah, and I think it is important that, you know, as people who are Christians who are involved in policing, you know, part of our responsibility as Christians and, and the moral code that we live by as Christ followers is truth telling. It is not accepting bribes. It is looking at evidence, verifying evidence. These are all things that we get right from the pages of scripture. And so um, you know, being a, an ethical leader, treating people mm-hmm. with integrity, um, treating people in a, um, a, a way that is impartial, um, not showing favoritism. I mean, these are all principles from God's justice um, moral code. And so it is especially important for those of us who are Christians, I think, who are involved in law enforcement at whatever level to act in a way that is consistent with um, what we're called to do as Christ followers. And and if we happen to find ourselves in a corrupt precinct or under a a corrupt situation where things are not being properly investigated, I would imagine, Mark, like you would probably want to encourage those people to, you know, take some steps or remedies to report that or go up the ladder or something. I mean, you know, there are uh, systems for that. Yeah. So that, that very question about, well, you know, the, the, the people who are investigating this right now aren't doing the proper thing. Um, there are ways of getting that solved. And in some places, they actually will take the investigation and send it to some organization outside of their own. So if you have a conflict of interest, for example, uh, or the investigation exceeds the capacities of the agency. The other thing I'd want to mention about this is that It's true that as a Christian, whether we're in policing or out of policing, we should be looking for the truth. And one of the things that I would say is don't look for it in the news media because you probably won't find it. And and how do I know that? Am I just beating them up because they're easy to beat up or they're saying bad things about the police? No, I've been in policing long enough to know that there are some bad cops out there. They deserve a bad reputation. They deserve to get fired. They deserve to get sued. Some of them deserve to go to prison. I worked with a couple who did go to prison. So I know what it's like to have bad cops around and it's hideous. So we don't like them any more than anybody else. But on the other hand, when I've, you know, in many years, I've had uh, situations where 
reporters reported on something that I was present at. I knew it. I saw it. I think I was all wrong. And I looked at the, the article or I would see it on TV and said, did they, did they even show up at the place that they're talking about? This is crazy. And, and so when I've, I've over 36 years, I've seen that. I, I remember one time I got quoted in one newspaper and it, it said something that was ridiculous. And then the chief of police sent me to a captain. My captain said, you know, you need to tune this officer up because he shouldn't have said that. And I went and talked to the, the captain and I said, I never said that. I never said that. And, and he laughed at me. He brought me into his office. He showed me an article. And in that article from the same newspaper, it had him referring to black people as the N-word. Now, mind you, this captain was black. And he never said anything like that. And he says, the reason I keep this is because I want other people who get victimized by these so-called journalists who don't know what they're writing and quote things that they shouldn't quote to realize it doesn't just happen to you, to happen to you it happens to all of us. So get past it. And you know, as I went through my career, I got to see it a whole lot. But because the news media are so good at propagating things that are emotionally gripping, that once the emotion set in, belief follows. And that, as a Christian, you need to pay attention to, is that it is unjust to assume a position without knowing both sides of the equation. And the Bible says that too. It says, don't take one person's side until you've heard the both person's side. Right. And so the news media is one person's side, but remember, it's always affected by a profit motive to excite or distort in order to get sales. There's a great comment on YouTube. I was going to go to that. Yeah. All right. Uh, Bob, it's on YouTube uh, from Jenny. Um, She says, is there any transparency to the public? Say a person reports a cop does something wrong. Can the public follow up to see what actions were taken to address it? And she says a sheriff in her town um, went to jail for corruption several years ago it was local news reporters that actually discovered it and they worked uh, with outside agencies to get him. So yeah, that's a good question. Like is, is there also transparency about what's happening when files are reported? Is there a way for the public to, to look into that? It depends on what, where you are. And it also depends on what the nature of the claim is. So in California, if you make a complaint against an officer, when the, when the investigation is over, a letter is sent to you telling you what the results of the investigation are. Um, they don't go in the public and say, hey, this investigation was closed this way. They just report it to the, the particular person who made the report. What they do with it, you know, they can post it on the internet, uh, you know, burn it and make smoke signals out of it. It's up to them. But it is in California, there, there is a requirement that the person who makes the report get told what the what the investigation concluded and if the officer was if it was found sustained whether the officer suffered any uh, punishment as a result of that now as to whether the public can have access to other files is a completely different question and it's one that that's worth getting into because in some states they have what are called uh, sunshine laws you know sunshine law is a law that allows the public access to police files. Sometimes it allows access to the police files once they're concluded. 
Sometimes it allows them access to the police files while they're undergoing the investigation. Uh, they have some advantages and some disadvantages. California, for example, is not a sunshine state. Some people wish it were. Um, I have personally seen the devastating effects of the so-called sunshine state laws in that, uh, in one case, uh, one officer, it was a, actually it was a chief of police, was going through a really nasty divorce and his wife kept sending, soon to be ex-wife, was sending these really horrible allegations against him and as soon as they hit and were processed in the uh, formal procedures, she would call the newspaper and say, hey, you need to check this investigation out. And so all of this stuff was being published as part of the ongoing investigation. So really, you know, awful stuff that was completely untrue and untested, but because she had, because that state had access to that uh, ongoing investigation, this became just sort of a, a tool for an angry soon to be ex-wife to just beat up somebody in the news media. Uh, those can, that can happen. And the, the problem is that the news media do not put things in context. So I, I can see at the end of an investigation, if the officer is found, if the case is sustained, um, publishing some parts of that, that would make sense. Uh, maybe the, the punishment or what the, per, the charge was, et cetera, that makes sense. But while the investigation is pending or cases that are not sustained or that the officer was found unfounded, those don't belong in the public. Uh, those, are, those are things that can be um, kept private and confidential to, to prevent that kind of uh, salacious defamation. So there is transparency some places. Uh, most states now are moving towards a report to the, the person who made the report to tell them what the consequences were or at least whether it was sustained, not sustained, or unfounded. So I hope that's at least somewhat responsive to your viewers' question. One of the um, ways that people are calling for reform um, that isn't mentioned on the eight can't wait um, site is immunity for removing or stripping the officers of immunity. Can you talk a bit about what immunity for an officer is and what the pros and cons would be about, you know, stripping an officer of immunity? Depends on what you mean by stripping them of their immunity. <clears throat> this is a very complicated legal question. Actually, there's a whole series of legal questions and I really don't want to get into it because it's, once you start opening that up, there are so many little nuances that it becomes very difficult to explain to a lay audience. Mm. I'm even confused on some parts of it, and it changes. It's not the same all the time. But there are some cases, for example, I, we can be broad about it, where uh, an, an officer would be immune to a lawsuit. So, for example, uh, an officer um, hurts somebody, you know, and, and it's within policy, and the, the city gets sued. Well, the, the city has to pay the damages on that, not the officer. The officer is immunized from that by a particular law that allows them to not get sued directly unless it's for punitive damages. So if you strip the officer of that immunity, if the officer becomes personally liable for every act that he performs in the, in the performance of his duties, then, then the officer is going to, any lawsuit that goes against the city for the officer doing what he believes is, is actually supposed to be doing, doing it in good faith, 
uh, he's, he's going to stop working because everybody would sue and the officer would have to pull money out of his own pocket to pay his own defenses. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, it's not even practical. You, you would, if you want to defund the police, strip that kind of immunity, and you, you'll just watch officers, once they start seeing each other getting sued and losing money out of their own pockets, they'll get into another occupation. You, that, that's not even survivable. So th- that's one form of immunity, but there are others, particularly when it comes to immunity from uh, lawsuit, when they violate somebody's constitutional rights. You know, did they know the constitutional right existed? And was it well known before the officer performed the act? Um, what if it was something that uh, that particular constitutional provision or uh, case law was developed as a result of what the officer did? You know, all, all sorts of really interesting technical questions. Mm-hmm. And that's as far as I want to go into it. I think we would get into some really deep weeds and, and yeah. confuse the issue of police reform. Yeah, makes sense. Thank you. Another thing that wasn't on the eight count weight website that I'm wondering what your thoughts are is the rise in body cams on law enforcement. Do you see that as being something that could potentially more jurisdictions should try to adopt? Is that a reform that you think could be good that could protect both the officer and the the person, the suspect or whoever he's in talking to or, or interrogating? Um, because then there's a there's an automatic objective witness of sorts that they can look at more evidence. Um, maybe it would reduce even false reports. I don't know. I'm, I'm just wondering what your thoughts are about body cams. If the body cams are, number one, if they're, if they're turned on, because sometimes the issue is whether they turn them on, hmm. uh, they can be useful for exactly the reasons you just mentioned. Number two, the body cams move around. You know, they're not always in the position they need to be in. And they don't see a lot of what the officer sees. So they can be misleading in a systematic way, or I guess you call it an instrumentally systematic way. So because it only can see one direction at any given time and the officer's head is on a pivot, then you're not going to, you know, if it's, if it's on his chest, for example, that's not going to help. Now there are some cameras that can be affixed to the, let's say a glasses or to a, a helmet or something like that. That gets you a little closer those are unwieldy or could be unwieldy, but they're at least an option. Who knows what the technologies will come up with? The, the question about camera footage is always the most important one. So let's just presume that we have a mature technology. The technology is, is not intrusive. You know, the officer can use it without having to worry about any kind of tactical problems or vision problems. Now we have to ask, what are we going to do with the videos that we have? So if it shows one thing and it wasn't showing some some very important part of it, for example, what the officer sees or believes to have seen in peripheral vision or that the camera just didn't pick up for whatever reason, then you have a problem of questioning the officer's statement based on a machine that didn't see what the officer saw, didn't hear what the officer saw, didn't see in three dimensions. You know, there's, there's no 3D cameras yet. Uh, can't hear what the officers hear. Officers hear in more than just stereo. They hear it in all sorts of interesting directions. I mean, it is literally stereo in the fact they have two ears. But the directionality of the sound isn't the same in a camera as it is in a human ear. And the human ear is being processed by a brain that the 
The camera is not. And so when you download that audio and the video, you are not hearing what the officer heard. You might hear some gross features like a gunshot or somebody yelling or somebody talking. But what about the more subtle features that only the ear hears or something that's subtle that only the eye sees or some movement that was between the frames of a video? You know, it's going 40 frames per second. The human eye sees a lot faster than 40 frames per second. So those are the problems that you have. There are, there are technical problems and what you're going to be doing with those videos, if you do not know what the restrictions, I shouldn't say restrictions, what the, what the limitations of those are, you can make some very, very bad judgments based on them. So I would say overall, they're a good idea. Overall, they're better than not having. But if you don't have a clear idea of what the technologies are and what their limitations are, and you put them into practice in your policies and your evaluations, then they could be a problem. Hmm. Well, that's good. Those are some things I never yeah. really thought about, you know, um, with regard to that. So yeah, that's very helpful. Like, oh, hmm. Yeah. So another common question that we get a lot, and I'm just going to use a real life example of a friend of ours, um, and um, he's an African-American guy. Um, I'm going to say maybe he's 38, 40, somewhere in there. Um, and he, according to his account, he's been pulled over quite a lot. Um, and um, he's, he said he's been pulled over 30 times. Now, Monique said to me before the show, she said, I think maybe he was exaggerating. So we'll just ratchet it down to half that. Okay. 15, <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe he was just yeah. being flowery. I asked him like, are you being serious? And he said, yes, but I must, I missed that part. Sorry. Yeah. I think you had stepped out for a minute, but um, I, you know, it, it, it did seem excessive to me and, and this comes up a lot and he, he's not like, you know, an anti-police guy. He, he's, he's a very law-abiding citizen. He's a pastor here locally. He's a good guy. He's a very easygoing personality, but he, he seems to have gotten pulled over yeah. quite a lot. And we yeah. get this question with a good level of frequency. So maybe you can help us understand like what goes into a decision to pull someone over. I mean, I think that some people may have the impression that you know, a, a person of color just drives by and, you know, oh, we're pulling them over, you know, that that's, that's what happens. But I'm thinking that maybe more goes into it than that. But I, again, I don't have a law enforcement background and would love if you could help me understand or make sense of these situations where somebody seems to be getting pulled over a lot when he's a consistently law-abiding person. Mm -hmm. Yes. And that's a, that is a very important question. So you have anecdotes like that, which is part of the reason why uh, cameras on the officers are an important thing. Uh, this is a good case for a camera on the officers because it would tell us why the officer made the stop to begin with. Now, there are, I've heard anecdotes like that too, and I tended to believe them because of the people who were telling them to me. Uh, two of them were from police officers, black police officers. They have no reason to lie about that. <laughs> They have no reason to say, hey, you know, these guys are, are pulling me over just because I'm black. They're, they they don't want to see that, but they're telling the truth. Some of them were other people that I knew who just weren't embellishers. They weren't, they weren't trying to conjure up some 
kind of political case or something like that. So when I hear of things like that, uh, I take them seriously and I recognize that that does happen. So now the question is why? Why is that happening? Why is somebody getting stopped so many times? And if it's not 30, if it's 15, who cares? It's too many, at least on its face. Now, I don't know if it's possible the person drives fast. I don't know. Um, but, but here's the point. If I were being pulled over, let's say in a particular jurisdiction, over and over and over again, and I, and I never got a good answer as to why I got pulled over, then I would start making complaints. I'd say, I got pulled over, and an officer never told me why. And this is the fifth time I've been pulled over. What, what's going on? The, what, go, what should go on in a, in a traffic stop when somebody gets pulled over, what the law says is that you have to have a reason to do it. You have to either believe they committed a violation or they're about to commit a violation and you have reasonable cause to believe that some particular crime is, a, is afoot and this person is going to commit it or did commit it. So if you don't have a, a traffic violation, then, then it better be something you can articulate in terms of what crime you think they're about ready to commit or did commit. If you don't have those two things, you have no reason to pull a person over. So when I would, if I were being pulled over and it was happening all the time, I would just politely, you don't have to be a, a jerk about it, but just say, officer, can you please help me out? I don't really understand why I'm being pulled over. And then let the officer explain it. And, and if you don't get the answer you, you need, and it keeps happening over and over, then that's the time to start making complaints at the, at the internal affairs or and get the officer's name. Because if, they, if the internal affairs or the agency continually gets reports on, on the same officers, not necessarily one, you could have a whole crew of them who are doing it. And they start realizing, hey, we were getting a disproportionate number of these unknown stop complaints from these particular officers it alerts the agency to a problem that they wouldn't get if you didn't make the complaint. So as much as I don't like seeing officers getting complained against, I do like seeing getting complained against when there's a reason to. And I think if you're constantly getting pulled over, regardless of what color you are, I don't care whether you're white or black or ultraviolet, if you're constantly getting pulled over and you're not being told why, or the reason that they're telling you that doesn't make any sense, you need to make a, a personnel complaint against the officer. And if it keeps happening over and over, eventually it's going to add up. And then those things do stop. I've seen it happen. So I think that's just such a great answer. And I think one of the critical pieces that you said there that I caught was if it's a repeated thing in the same jurisdiction, you know, then it's, that that could be you know something to to pay attention to yeah yeah i, I think what um mark said early on is that you know yes there are corrupt cops like there are sinful humans and sinful humans get jobs and some of them uh, you know are police yeah. um and you know that and that's nothing to you know just take lightly mm -hmm. um you know police have huge amounts of influential power, um, you know, behind a badge and things like that. And so how do we, um, you know, as citizens make sure that we can also hold, you know, corrupt police accountable? It's not, there's not a conversation of, you know, well, racist cops don't exist or things like that. And yeah. racist cops of any color. So I do. Or corrupt cops. Yeah, or corrupt, co corrupt cops, any kind of corruption. You, know, yeah. you want to, yeah. you know, stand against that. Yeah. But um 
I've yeah, I think this has been this has been very a helpful, helpful conversation. Yeah, and I I think some of my takeaways from this are that the complexities of policing, like the thing is, is that we want the police to help restrain evil, but when we want, we also recognize that they have a lot of power, and so we also need good structures and policies that protect the people, the citizens. I, I think another takeaway I'm getting is all of the reforms that have been happening yeah. over the last several decades and things continue to improve. We want that. Um, and we as citizens also um, want to notice the policing in our area to, to be grateful for those cops, but also to, to you know, if we notice repeated problems Mm -hmm. to to speak up. Yeah, I think it was helpful to hear like, well, this has already been um, addressed. This reform has already been made because I think one of the things that you can hear in the media is that, you know, all police are bad. All of these reforms need to happen and they need to happen because all of these things are happening and they've never been addressed. Well, clearly that isn't true. Um, Another thing I would um, leave with or encourage people in is, yeah, you know, Mark is saying definitely report the corruption when you see it, but also remember that our police officers are also public servants. And how do we treat our public servants? You know, um, as, as Mark said earlier, if we didn't have police, well, then evil could just run rampant. And so we cannot just take lightly the position that someone puts themselves in, in becoming a public servant, especially a righteous public servant. You know, so we want to, you know, make sure that while we are um, reporting corruption when it needs to be reported, that we are also celebrating the officers in our churches, in our lives, in our community, thanking them, reminding them that they are appreciated for what they go out and do every day. Every day when a police officer, you know, puts on that badge and that uniform and gets in that car, they are in many areas. I know, especially like in South Central and especially around that 2020 time, they can become targets simply because they're wearing a badge or a uniform. So, you know, if you are a, a public servant, a police officer, thank you, you know, for for getting up every day and deciding to go again, even when a culture might be standing against you. That's good. Mark, thank you. Any last words for us before we go? Uh, the only thing I would say is that if you're, <clears throat> if you ever think about the police officers and and you hear all of the terrible things you see on television, et cetera. There are a lot of things that officers do that people never know about, that the news media never report on. Mm-hmm. I can tell you in 36 years, uh, I've watched police officers take people who were destitute, give them money, put them in a hotel and pay for it, buy them food, do acts of charity that people never knew about because they never broadcast it. They don't do anything other than what God puts before them. Not all of these guys were Christians. Not all of them were religious at all. They just did it because they came into the business because they wanted to help people. They do it in a lot of ways that people will never know. So when you do see an officer, you just look at them and say, somewhere along the road, this person has or will do something unbelievably charitable, and I should be thankful for it. Well, thank you so much, thank Mark. Thank you. And uh, love to have you back sometime and tackle another another policing topic. But this has been so helpful and educational. Thank you. It was a pleasure being here.
Oh, thank you so much. We'll Thanks. see you soon. Okay, take care. Yeah. Thanks. Wow, that was good. That was. I a- really enjoyed that. Yes. I learned a lot. Yes, I'm going to address um, Susanna's comment. Susanna, okay. it, um, on YouTube, it's um, her handle is StuBlue2. And she says, I know why I am pulled over before I even speak to the officer. I have never experienced being pulled over for no reason. Is it because I'm white? I don't know. I don't have the answer to that. But what I would caution against is the assumption that you have, let's see, um, I've never been... I've been, I've never experienced being pulled over for no reason. I would, I would caution against avoid, um, avoiding that assumption that, well, I've just never been pulled over or, you know, I always know the reason. And this has happened to me because I'm white. I am black and I have been pulled over two times. One, because I walked out of the mall, (laughs) the Fox Hills mall without going to the restroom. And I had to go so bad that I ran a red light and made a U-turn when, because there were no cop, no cars coming. And a cop pulled me over. I explained to the cop, this is my position. This is what's going on right now. He then turned on his siren and told me, and I, I mean, well, we don't know his name. And this was years ago. He told me, he said, follow me and stay close. And he escorted me to a Jack in the box so that I could go to the bathroom. There was that situation. Was it because I was black? I don't know. I I feel like praise God for that cop though, because it would have been a horrible situation. The next time I got pulled over, I was doing 90 down the 210 free. No, no, down the five freeway coming from Santa Clarita. And the cop pulled me over and was like, do you know why I pulled you over? And I said, yes. And he was like, why? And I said, because I was doing 90 and he was like, you're right. And there it is. And I got a ticket for it. Um, But You know, the same way that I knew why I was being pulled over, Susanna, is the same way that you knew why you were being pulled over. So we don't want to make the assumption that, you know, maybe it's because of skin color. Um, I think a lot of culture does that. And um, and this is not just for you, Susanna, but for anybody. Um, A lot of cultural um, conversations happen from that point of, well, that only happens because you're white. Well, no, you know, there are I know many black people who have never been pulled over a day in their life. You know, so we just have to, without evidence, I think that's one of the things that you hit on, you know, is like we need evidence. So we don't want to say, well, this only happened to me because I'm white or this only happened to me because I'm black. What is the evidence to support the claim? Yeah, that's good. Well, uh, do you want to do the tweet or you want to just be done? We're over time. I kind of just want to be done. I'm a little okay. sleepy. <laughs> we have a big day. Yeah, if, if I'm honest. All right. So we're going to be done. Uh, well, this has been good. Uh, well, and we're going to continue to talk about policing. This is not like all of the topics. I think Mark did a great job in helping us tackle police reform, gave us a lot of things to think about. And if you have thoughts about policing or topics you would like us to tackle in the future, um, send them into the show and and let us know kind of, you know, what you would like us to to do we've got i've got at least another idea to maybe have eric muldrow back on at some point yes and uh, talk more about but uh you know this is an important conversation that our country is having and i think we've got a couple of really good guys to help us think about it i think so too and it, it's really important i know everyone wants to protect the citizens from the police that's the big conversation right now 
from my heart, I want, yes, I, and I'm not negating that. I'm not saying that that's not important, but it's also equally important to have equal weights and measures. So how do I also protect the police if they need that from certain citizens? Like we both know someone who is connected to an officer um, in the the who was who was present during the George Floyd riots, and this officer was locked inside of um, right by the epicenter. Right the, by the epicenter was the locked riots. inside of the precinct. I think while they while started they to burn, burn it burn it, it down. down, and he thought he was going to die in that building. Yeah, and you know, so what is how do we come alongside and say, you know, I'm not going to show partiality. I'm going to you know make sure that each side is protected, that each side is cared for, um, because our culture will damn and villainize the police officers to a degree where we just think that they are all evil, um, ruthless, hard-hearted, and things like that, and think that they don't need protection. But these police officers that are getting up every day to, to come protect and serve also have families, and we can't forget that. Now, am I saying that, you know, every police officer is righteous and holy and, you know, loving Jesus? No. And yet, they're created in the image of God and we're not going to treat someone with partiality. So I'm also going to say, Hey, this image bearer also deserves the protection that I would give to this person here. So just things to think about. Yeah, it's good. Well, friends, we will see you next week for another show. Uh, And we are looking forward to continuing the conversations. Let us know how, how you enjoyed the show, what your thoughts are. You can email us and uh, or put your comment on Facebook. And yeah, just looking forward to continuing the conversation. So that's it. Good night. Good night. God bless. Thanks for listening to All The Things. Be sure to subscribe to our website at allthethingsshow.com and find us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or wherever you stream your podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and the bell so you'll receive alerts when we post new shows. We'll see you next week.